This is Joseph Gervasi. I'm here with the Reverend Kirk T. Berlinbach. We are conducting this interview at St. Timothy's Episcopal Church here in beautiful Roxborough, uh, Philadelphia. Today is the 27th of June, 2016, and this is part of Loud Fast Philly. Father Kirk, hello. Hey, how you doing? So uh, glad to be with you tonight. It's great to have you here, or Thank to you. be here with you. Yeah. Um, where were you born and when? Uh, I was born at Jefferson Hospital in Philly, but I grew up uh, in West West Collinswood. Um, my father was a priest, so he had a church in West Collinswood. That that congregation is no longer there. What year was that? That you were uh, born? I was born in '69. Okay, yeah. Um, and then when I was about six, I was in first grade. I remember we moved to Haddonfield, New Jersey, mm -hmm. uh, which at the time, just for listeners' sake, you could buy a house for less than $900,000 and wow. it was a much more accessible <laughs> yeah. uh, middle-class town at the mm -hmm. time but uh, so then I grew up there and uh, yeah and your father was a priest then uh, does also he, does Episcopal he, priest yeah. right does he come did he come from a line of priests no no although I have it from my other side of the family my mother's grandfather was an Episcopal priest as well mm -hmm. and now I have an aunt and an uncle on my father's side both by marriage who are priests Having so it does seem to run. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, uh, I mean, there's certainly not something that, that runs so much in, say, Catholic families because, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, no. yeah, dad's not going to probably be a priest. Um, what, when did it become an idea for you to go into either the same line of work, uh, so to speak, uh, as your father? I mean, was it something that, that always had, it was an interest in? The church was always a big part of my life. I mean, you know, my kids would probably say like what a lot of preachers kids do which is you know when you get dragged to church every Sunday well mm -hmm. I happen to like it actually mm -hmm. um, so it was always a big part of my life um, I always knew that I wanted to do something in a helping profession whether that was uh, be a therapist or be a teacher or something like that and it was probably um, you know I went right to seminary from undergraduate you know because of I had a bachelor's in philosophy, which qualified me to say, would you like fries with that? So, <laughs> um, so I went right to Princeton Seminary uh, with the intention of either going into ordination or going on for doctoral work in teaching. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, and then it was about midway through uh, that I really got clear on the call to ordain ministry. And, and the call, how, how does the call then come, come to you as an individual, or how did it it's in the Episcopal Church. It's definitely a process, and it is not done by yourself. Uh, so we work with a committee of people that's appointed uh, by the diocese. Our church is organized into regional groups that are called dioceses, much like uh, the Roman Catholic Church. Um, so there's a commission on ministry, and so any person who is interested in becoming a priest works with the commission on ministry in their diocese over many years. Um, uh, and it's part of their job to help really help you figure out are you called or not and they turn away a lot of people too uh, for a variety of reasons. As a young person was it always clear to you that the Episcopal Church was the, the one that you were going to retain this connection to through your father? I mean was there ever any thought that there was maybe other faiths or branches of the faith that maybe appealed more to you as an individual? Yeah you know well I, I grew up uh, I went to a Quaker elementary school and so I did grow up with that influence and tradition, um, which definitely has some real value and some staying power, that, that contemplative, um, quiet aspect. Um, but no, I don't think I ever really considered 
if I was going to stay in organized religion, it was going to be this one. Mm-hmm. What were your interests as a young person, you know, prior to, to going into this path? How young? Uh, I mean, just as, a, uh, I guess, a, you know, teenager, what oh, okay, were your general, okay. general interests? Uh, you know, I mean, I always liked, uh, music was always really important, so I would spend all the money I had usually at the, because CDs had just come out. I was a junior in high school. It was 1986, and mm-hmm. CDs were, you know, the, the record store would have a section of one rack of CDs in the back. Uh, but I got a CD player at that point, and I started collecting CDs, and um, there was only one store in the area, uh, Third Street Jazz and Rock. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah, I remember They were well. the only store at the time that had any sort of an alternative yeah, downstairs. goth downstairs selection yeah. on CDs. So I definitely spent a lot of money there. And they were getting a lot of imports, too. Yeah, like, oh, definitely. Never, yeah. Oh, yeah, and definitely for all the goth stuff, that was almost all imports. So, yeah. yeah. And was there any any thought that this, this interest in music was in any way contrary to what you were doing in terms of the faith? Oh, I never really struggled with it, but it certainly, it certainly upset some people, and maybe that was consciously or unconsciously my intention. You know, at certain points in my teenage life, it's a way to... You know, all teenagers are supposed to, to make their parents go, Oh my God, what's wrong with little Joey? You know, uh, what have I done? So, yeah, I mean, so so maybe there was some rebellious part that was done for effect. I mean, I saw a picture, and this it'll be in the blog, where you yeah. have a massive mohawk. I mean, it looks like yeah. it's a foot yeah. mohawk. So, you know, what is your father, who is a priest in the church, you know, was presumably taking you, his son, moving on that path to that church. Yeah. You know, what, what do they think about this? Did they, I mean, clearly they allowed you to have that level yeah, of Yeah, no, and my parents, I mean, they definitely expressed their, they would prefer that I didn't, but I mean, I got to give them props that they were never like, if you, you know, they were never, uh, my parents really weren't perfect people, but I have to give them credit for, uh, um, giving me the freedom to express myself and recognizing that that's what I needed to do. So that mm-hmm. was cool. Did the church that you grew up in, was it as liberal-minded as the church that you're now the priest of? Well, some of that is time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, it would have been hard to find many Episcopal churches 30 years ago that were as progressive socially or as comfortable with full inclusion of, of women and gay and lesbian and trans and, and all that stuff as we are today. Uh, but no, uh, if we were to compare the, the priest of the church I grew up with, who I, I dearly love, but he was definitely um, very, time, very, very patriarchal, very, uh, he was not a progressive thinker. Mm-hmm. Do you feel that... Uh, I was going to get to this a little bit later, but it seems like it's appropriate now. When you're communicating these ideas that, that seem very progressive, uh, that there are elements of, of people who are in attendance at the church who maybe are not entirely on board with this, or that a lot of these ideas that you put forward might be new to them. Mm-hmm. I mean, for example, it seems like the greater society has come along quite well in acceptance of gays and gay Absolutely. marriage and all that, but then... I think, say, trans is something that probably a lot of older people have never really heard before. And then mm-hmm. all of a sudden, it becomes a thing. It becomes a thing that you, you should probably have certain feelings about or a certain acceptance mm-hmm. of. Mm-hmm. And I imagine that there's certain people who might be taken aback by that. Do you encounter that within the church? Uh, absolutely. I mean, you always run, anytime you introduce new ideas that are contrary to the, 
what the old ideas were, you're going to run into some resistance to that. Um, my desire is always to bring along as many people as possible, and I think I'm actually fairly successful at that. Um, but that may mean that sometimes I have to dial back the way I might speak it in an interview like this or the way I might speak it to somebody that I knew was more like-minded, mm -hmm. that I've got to dial that back to make the message, to allow people to hear what I'm trying to say in the context of the gospel so that they can come along to it as opposed to hearing it as uh, a liberal agenda that's being foisted mm -hmm. on them or yeah. something like that. But the, the, it would be an interpretation of the gospel, right? So I, I imagine there would be some people well, who say, well, that's your interpretation of this, but I don't see it that way, sure. or this priest doesn't see it that way. Sure, this, sure. Know. No, that, that, of, of course it's not universally held, and there are some, um, there are some uh, passages throughout Scripture that, uh, that on the surface appear to have some very clear teachings in regards to human sexuality and traditional gender roles and things like that. Um, my view, and I think the view of many people in uh, not only the Episcopal Church, but progressive churches, you know, across the board, tend to understand that maybe there's broader themes that need to, we need to follow that larger theme um, throughout Scripture, and that that can lead us to be able to see uh, a passage in scripture which appears to be clearly opposed to same-sex relationships within Christianity and to see that as a particular view in a particular time in a particular culture and not necessarily a universal mm -hmm. mandate uh, but that there are universal themes of you know love and liberation and justice and radical peacemaking that run throughout all of scripture and that that's those things that we're trying to discern and be faithful to in what we teach. Mm -hmm. Do you feel that you need to, in effect, answer to anyone that, that there is perhaps a line where you move to, say, an activism that would be uncomfortable uh, by the standards of, a, of a, a governing body of some sort? I mean, do you need to stay within certain parameters in how you ex express this and deal we, with these issues? You can certainly get in trouble for it, um, for a variety of different things. I mean, if the way in which you're presenting things, if that manages to alienate a majority of your congregation, they're going to be on the phone to the bishop. And the bishop's going to call you in and say, okay, Kirk, what's going on? You're pissing off everybody in your church. Mm -hmm. And the bishop might even say, well, I happen to agree with you, but you have to, you know, if you're trying to get help them to come along to that viewpoint, however you're doing it ain't working. Mm -hmm. right. uh, but then you could also teach completely outside of the what's considered to be the acceptable bounds and get in trouble for that. You'd be called in and written up. Because mm -hmm. so. I imagine it, I mean, it is, in effect, a job for you, too. I mean, you support a family, you live here, so there is a sure. certain, you know, you, you do need to stay within a certain framework, mm -hmm. surely, you know. Um, I try not to let job security be my primary motivation. Right. Uh, I would be, I'm sure I'd be a liar if I said it never entered my mind, but I don't. I've been fortunate to not have to worry about that, that I feel like I can still be faithful to what I really believe and what I really believe God is calling me to say and do and act and how he's trying to, well, how I'm called to help to bring other people along that path. Mm -hmm. So I've been blessed so far to not run into that. I'm curious how you, you present some of the ideas to young people, and I mean children as young people, because when sure. I was 
growing up, I grew up, as I mentioned to you earlier, uh, Roman Catholic, mm -hmm. as most people of my background would. Uh, and the concept of God that was presented to me was almost an analog for Santa Claus, in that it was mm -hmm. a white guy with a beard who was constantly watching me, and I'd mm -hmm. be rewarded either with presence or heaven mm -hmm. or coal or hell if I was misbehaving. And it seemed to be a very limited concept. So as I became just slightly older, I realized the adults have made up Santa Claus. He's not real. My parents yeah. are giving me this. And, and my almost simultaneous thought was, I don't think that there's actually a God either. Mm -hmm. I think this is also not real because this what's been presented to me seems very simplistic. Mm -hmm. uh, so in, in your position in, in expressing these ideas to young people, how do you present something that I imagine your vision is going to be far more subtle and nuanced uh, vision of God than, you know, the great old patriarch in the mm -hmm. sky. So then how do you present that vision? I think that God becomes meaningful in somebody's life when you start to think about questions of meaning and purpose, you know, why am I here? Am I here to do anything other than just make myself happy, are there, you know, do I have a greater connection and obligation to other people or to the planet? Um, and I think it's in, when you start to engage those questions which really become the core spiritual questions, that the idea of uh, a God, a God who uh, not only created the universe, but a God who actively loves the universe that God created, um, and within the Christian context, a God who loves us enough that God is willing to look past our faults and the ways in which we screw up and harm ourselves and harm one another um, and do all of these horrific things, um, a God who loves us despite all of that uh, and is willing to, I would put it in terms to, you know, Christianity boils down to the notion that sacrificial love is stronger than even death. That's Christianity in the simplest possible terms. Mm -hmm. So that God's love for us was so strong and so poignant and powerful uh, that by God was willing to give of God's self in the form of Jesus um, in order to bring us back to God when we strayed away. Okay. I was listening to uh, an interview a couple days ago with the food writer Michael Pollan. Oh yeah, uh, you, you know that guy. Yeah, the, the uh, Omnivore's Dilemma is a life-changing book. Yeah, this, this is a great book, and he he was talking about uh, psychedelics, uh -huh. uh, and it's the, going to be the subject of his, his forthcoming book. And one of the things oh, he cool. would, uh, yeah, it should be very interesting because there's been a lot of research in, in terms of the use of uh, MDMA and, and LSD on people who have PTSD or mm -hmm. uh, different addictions and depression and so forth. But what he was talking about in the interview, or, or one one point that he hit on was. The idea of a mystical experience mm -hmm. where the faiths of the world tend to be stem from a mystical experience of, of certain individuals, like, say, Moses speaking to God through burning mm -hmm. bush. Mm -hmm. And that mystical experience is then interpreted, interpreted by people down the line who haven't had the direct experience, but who look towards this person's experience and kind of take it forward in the, in the teachings mm -hmm. of the churches and so forth. And that his feeling was that a lot of religions don't want individuals to have these mystical experiences themselves because they want to, in effect, be in control of the interpretation of the experience. Mm -hmm. And that, that part of the reason why something like, say, uh, LSD or uh, psilocybin mushrooms would be frowned on is that 
when an individual takes them, they can achieve at times a sort of a mystical mm -hmm. uh, experience, a communion with what they think may be a god or a universe or something like that. And did you have any feelings about that? Does that hit you in any way? It's an interesting question. Um, I think that his point of not wanting to lose control of the, uh, well, not wanting to lose control uh, over the over the product, mm -hmm. um, or of their followers, you know, I I can appreciate that from a uh, from a practical standpoint. I don't think it's overly cynical. Um, it's, you know, there have always been mystics, and mystics are pretty hard to control. Um, they've never, you know, they've never been the leaders of religious orders or things like that, these people that have mystical... Sometimes religious orders form around them, a la Francis of Assisi, mm -hmm. but uh, it was never his intention to really form a movement. You know, he wanted to just form a small group, and it just grew mm -hmm. without his desiring it necessarily to grow. But... Um, you know, I, I think it's, I think it's, if it leads people to the same place, and, it, and if it makes real some of the, if it gives the person the ability, and I don't know what's happening in that, I mean, I know that we can look at it through, you know, you can do an MRI scan on somebody that's tripping and see what activities happen in the brain, but I don't know that being able to quantitatively analyze it actually tells you what's happening in a spiritual sense and I know that there's been a lot of experiments with trying to recreate that um, in a controlled environment that that um, that mystical experience there's been ways to try to induce that actually not with psilocybin or, or psycho psychoactive drugs but mm. through some sort of electrical stimulation in a controlled environment I, I can't remember exactly the particular experiment but they had some success in doing that um, you know, and you can argue, well, that means, therefore, it's not real, that it's just a question of firing neurons, but all of our experience is a question of firing neurons, so I don't know what that yeah, tells yeah, you. Yeah. Uh, it, I was curious what you, the reaction was to uh, your, your silence equals death sermon. Yeah, yeah. Um, if you could maybe sort of explain, the, the, for those who haven't heard it, the, the premise, the basic idea of the sermon, and then how it was met by those who heard it, okay. or later read it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, I mean, of course, everybody, you know, Orlando won't be that long ago by the time people listen to this. Mm -hmm. People still know about the, the the massacre at Pulse. And I was enormously frustrated, and it's a growing frustration with um, horrible tragedies, usually horrible tragedies uh, uh, that come as a result of a heavily armed uh, individual um, massacring lots of people being met with a moment of silence, as if that somehow discharges our our duty or obligation to respond to this hor horror. Uh, and I just got fed up with it. And um, there's a slogan that actually grew out of the, uh, the AIDS crisis, which was silence equals death, because, of course, people were not uh, responding. You know, and if the, the longer the, at the time, the gay community and their allies remained silent in the face of this crisis, the government lack of response, lack of response from churches, lack of response from across the board, the more people were going to die. It was a very simple equation. Mm -hmm. And it occurred to me that um, our moments of silence are uh, effectively inaction, and the longer we choose to respond to these horrors with 
by just being silent and leaving it at that, mm -hmm. the more people are going to die. Yeah. Um, and so that was the gist of my sermon. And I got more reaction to that sermon than any sermon I've ever preached. And it was almost entirely positive. In fact, I don't know if I could tell you a negative one. I was kind of expecting maybe more uh, of a negative one, especially sort of taking a political... It was the strongest political stance I've ever taken in a sermon, mm -hmm. pretty much. Um, that went well. And is there, are there concerns about any sort of, you can't really politically advocate, right? I mean, is there an issue with based churches on, can't, yeah. You can based on my it. limited understanding right. of the law, which by the way is a law that is not enforced to our shame. Um, uh, to the shame of the church because there is a clear separation of church and state. Um, um, I could not get, stand up in the pulpit and say, if you want to be a good Christian, then you must vote for Barack Obama. Mm -hmm. uh, what I could do, if I was going to advocate a different political view, I could say, if you want to be a good Christian, you have to respect the sanctity of life and therefore you can only vote for a candidate at any level of government who is ardently pro-life mm -hmm. in their stance. That's a way around it. What they couldn't do is get up and say you have to vote for Republican X mm -hmm. by name. That right, would right, be breaking the law. Yeah. But you can skirt around it by saying it is the this is an essential tenet of the Christian faith to, you know, I would argue to say to respect uh, the fundamental humanity and goodness of all people and therefore you must only vote for the candidates uh, who support marriage equality which is no longer an issue thanks be to God but yeah right anyway well how do you face then someone say a demagogue like a Donald Trump say I would imagine that you're not a fan of him uh, can can you directly address what comes from the demagogue's mouth because now a lot of people pay attention to it and it's not necessarily a joke anymore so in the sermon the silence equals death sermon you know I did I was able to work in some ways of addressing that without directly addressing it. Number one, I don't find it's helpful. The moment I get up there and start saying something really strictly political without it being in, in a religious or a theological context, I, I don't think I'm doing my job, number one. Number two, people are going to shut off. If it disagrees with their political opinion, they're not going to hear a word I say afterwards. Mm -hmm. I'm wasting their time and mine. Right. What I can say, and what I did say, is we should be building bridges rather than walls. We should yeah. not be excluding people. We should be inviting people in and building relationships. Right. We know the shithead wants to build the walls. So when you say walls, you don't have to say that. I don't need to say, because yeah. if I get up and say Donald Trump is a xenophobic asshole, right. uh, they're not going to hear what I say. Mm -hmm. um, I'm not doing my job and the job I'm doing, I'm not doing well. So what's the point? And it's not my job to get up there and tell people who they should vote for. It's my job to get up there and preach the gospel. And hopefully, in hearing the gospel, they're inspired to vote. If they, you know, they're inspired to vote and they're inspired to vote for someone that's reflective of the love, the unconditional love that Jesus showed. <laughs> well, what do you think of religious folks, and I'm talking about leaders of churches, perhaps evangelicals, who would perhaps gravitate towards him. Uh, and and I th there was an interesting, I was listening to some political analysis on NPR earlier this week on that very question. Um, and they had two different, they had Ralph Reed on the pro-Donald Trump and they had a, 
uh, an evangelical uh, theologian or commentator who was very anti-Trump on um, to sort of go pro and con on that. I would agree with the with the analyst who said, look, if you want to say if the choice is between Clinton and Trump and is an evangelical, Trump is closer to your values, that's fine. Mm -hmm. But he said in no way could you say Trump reflects Christian values and Trump is a good Christian. Yeah, I couldn't see any effective examples but people of that. Do, I mean, I'm not even a Christian, but I couldn't see it. It's horrifying to me that people could see that. Yeah. But there are probably people who are horrified that I... Uh, voted for uh, a secret Muslim and put him in the White House. <laughs> yes. oh. I'm still waiting for those papers to find out where he was born. Yeah. Not American. <laughs> yeah. Um, how do, one thing that I see a lot, and especially in social media, is a sort of a crippling cynicism uh, in the world. I think that people are more likely to express, uh, not necessarily anonymously, but in, in a social media way than, than they may express in person. Uh, and I would imagine that part of your job is is doing battle with this this cynicism, this harsh, sort of mean-spirited at times cynicism. Do you face a lot of that, and how do you elect to deal with it then? You know, it's it's, uh, it's, it's a good question. It's an important question. I have preached on the subject, um, and I think that it's important um, that as Christians are just as moral human beings that you not say stuff online that you wouldn't say to the person face to face. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think that's a pretty clear uh, guideline, I hope. Yeah. Um, a guideline that doesn't seem that very many people pay that no, much mind No, unfortunately, to. I think that's horrific. Yeah. Um, um, I mean, more than not that I choose to ignore it because you're dealing with this person anonymously. What hope do you have of having a constructive dialogue and helping to persuade them? Mm -hmm. um, at best, I'm going to win the argument and silence them through a superior argument, but I don't know that that's going to dissuade them from their habit of doing what they're doing. Mm -hmm. um, you know, uh, if I'm really offended by something that somebody I know says, I will contact them privately and say, hey, I was really troubled by this, can we talk about it? Mm -hmm. Um, that's much more productive than getting into a war on their wall or a war on Twitter. Right. And you find this is a pretty effective approach then, dealing with it in that way? If I have the time, energy, and balls to actually do it, yes. Mm -hmm. it, it, I imagine it must be very difficult, though, to, to propagate ideas of, of something positive and constructive through in a world that appears to get progressively worse in terms of... Um, environmental damage, the uh, resources dwindling, wars erupting, mass shootings occurring. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, as a priest, in trying to say that there is a God who loves you and you must do his work, so forth, is it difficult to butt up against the times in which you're operating? I don't know. I don't know if it's any worse times. I mean, you always hear from people saying, oh, it's so much worse now. And I don't know if it's actually that much Every worse. Every time seems to be terrible. Or if we just, that. just because we get global news instantaneously now, we're mm -hmm. just aware of more horror, but the horror has always been Yeah, there. I guess it's an instantaneous horror that you get yeah. rather than a uh, an enveloping, slow enveloping death. I don't know. At, at times, but there's a lot of good stuff that goes on, mm -hmm. you know. There's a lot of amazing moments that happen all the time if you're open to them. Right. So I find, I guess as much as you run into stuff that wears you down, I run into stuff that 
uh, buoys me up. Yeah. Since this is Loud Fast Philly, we should talk a, a little we bit about We should talk punk. a little music, yeah. right? So, a little rock yeah, and roll? Absolutely. Yeah. So you, you do have involvement or had involvement in the punk scene in, in Philadelphia. A, a little bit. Yeah. I, I, I knew people who were truly part of this punk scene. I was a, uh, an upper middle class teenager coming in on the Paco, you know, to hang out with some real punk rockers to yeah. make myself think I was cool. But well, you did have a cool mohawk. I, that was more in college. That I was actually kind of living the life for a period of time there. But. What, what, do you, what was the appeal of that scene for you at the time? Scared other people. <laughs> um... It was loud and angry, and my parents had just gotten divorced, so I was pissed off. Mm -hmm. uh, so that worked. Um, I think that it was put really well. There was one or two people. The, the most genuine punk at my high school, she was a year younger. Her name was Molly, and I forget Molly's last name. But she came to school one day, and she'd put these huge inch-and-a-half-long spikes on the lower panel of her leather. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, oh, that's really cool. She goes, yeah, doesn't it make you just want to give me a hug? And I realized later, I didn't realize it at the time, but I realize now that, you know, all that we're doing with all that outlandish appearance stuff was, um, if you can accept me, if I look this ridiculous and you can accept me, then I can probably trust you because mm -hmm. you can really accept me. Yeah. So it was a way of testing. It was a way of protecting our hearts, I think, as much as anything else, as well as a way of pissing people off and showing that we were pissed off. Yeah, yeah. I think it's also an effective way of, of connecting with people who, if you... you know, no, no, yeah, this, yeah, yeah. Yeah, like this, this person is a, is a member of my tribe, and yeah. they probably has, you know, common, some common values, common interests. No, that, you're, you're right. It was, a way, it was a way to sort of uh, help you identify with other freaks, yeah. Do you think you retained anything from your time involved in that scene that you've put forward in, in you know, other things that you've done, like being a priest? I, I, you know, I mean, I still have long hair, um, there are not many. I know, I know a bunch of priests, and there's only a handful of them that are men that, that still have long hair. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I mean, I yeah, I, I think uh, I've never really outgrown my love of, of hard, scary music, and I still enjoy that. I still go to shows, and I still go in the pit. Uh, my knees regret it more <laughs> now, uh, but I like that. Um, yeah, I, I don't listen to as much punk um but i've really gone on more death metal now. death metal it, death metal and now black metal actually but what, what black metal bands or death metal bands do you do you like oh god i i tend to like more mellow death so like arch enemy and some of the scandinavian stuff mm -hmm. um black metal i really i mean the, my converting experience that actually got me serious listening to black metal was mirker uh, she's Danish. I just saw her last. Oh, month I know. Yeah, I know you're talking about. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, but then there's a lot of other. There's so much creative stuff that's going on in the black metal thing. What I really love about it is, I think that they're like the last true romantics in music. There's something also that strikes me as sort of prog rock ish about it. In yeah, the, it's it's going in different artistic directions. Yeah, it's not yeah, stuck yeah. in a little tiny. No, that there can be movements. There can be. You know, yeah, you symphonic composition. Yeah, you can incorporate, stuff, you know? say, violins or uh, or well, even synthesizer versions. Summoning is a band that I really like. They're a black metal band. That, that they are, they're all uh, Lord of the Rings, that, but they're the music of the orcs. But it's all this <laughs> chanting and elvish, and but then you know, you know. And, yeah. But then there's orchestral stuff too. Yeah, I mean, black metal tends to have a pretty dim view of Christianity. I mean, it, 
black metal is yeah, defined yeah, yeah. by its satanic music or something. Yeah, yeah. So none of this really, you know, is not a, an issue for you as... Well, it, 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 you know, I wrote pretty extensively on this. Um, I, I keep a blog and I, that's really enjoyable and helpful for me to process. Mm -hmm. And it's great when people read it and comment and are engaged by it, but I'll write it. If nobody reads it, uh, I'll write it because it's helpful for me. But um, it helps me to process that. And I, I think when I was younger, I couldn't listen to any of that stuff because I couldn't, my view of the world and morality and what was right was uh, much more rigid. And I realized that for a lot of the people doing black metal, it's just an act. Mm -hmm. it, might not, it might be an act that some parts of it leave me a little uncomfortable or, or very uncomfortable. Um, but does that mean that therefore I can't listen to the music? I don't know. You know, these are, there are, there are, I think there's some true believers out there. Uh, and I think we'd have, it would be hard for me with folks that I really think are, you know, I don't know. A lot of, a lot of modern Satanism isn't actually believing in an entity. It's believing in a, uh, it's sort of a belief system, a concept of uh, do what thou wilt. This well, kind of right, self, Ele eleva self elevating Satan as a as a, as a, as a as a character who represents, yeah, uh, the, who represents really individual, li right. right, liberty and freedom, and you know, not allowing repressive forces of. He's Satan is the Ayn Rand of. Uh, uh, I don't know. <laughs> it's it, one of the interview subjects that I had, uh, Nathan Gray, is a member of the Church of Satan. It's a priest in the, the Church oh, of yeah, Satan. Oh, yeah, yeah, I saw that, yeah. yeah. And he would probably have almost exactly the same beliefs as you or, or even me. I mean, he's ostensibly an atheist, so that obviously makes right. it different from you. But in terms of all of his social values, the same concerns, LGBT rights, things and so forth, all, all precisely the same, and yet there's this this church element, which I could never really get my head around. Mm -hmm. I mean, when I look at most of their rituals, they always just seem to be rather silly, which he seems to agree with. Uh, he seems to think that they're less silly now than maybe that they used to be. But he is a member of that church, and mm -hmm. yet the belief system is essentially, I don't know, one of, of self-empowerment and not being a slave to systems. No, and I, I think like there that. are some, some real commitments to some, uh, you know, I, I guess from their point of view, would be the values of humanism, you know, uh, some of which would be ones where we probably could find a lot of common ground in terms of, you know, protecting individual rights and liberty and seeing value in the, you know, in each individual regardless of how different they are than the mainstream norm or things like that. You know, I, I always try to find common ground with people. Well, you do some things with a certain group of a Jewish group, right? Yeah. Is it is it the is it Reconstructionist? No, well, it? it's interesting. I I've, I'm friendly with a bunch of rabbis. Um, the one that my parish has the most active relationship with is Congregation Rod of Shalom, which is a, a, a reform synagogue. And uh, what I mean for those who don't know that, well, what what is that great, particular? It's a great question. Yeah. Um, speaking strictly as a goyim. Um, uh, uh, I see Judaism sort of, you could divide it into like four groups uh, with sort of the ultra-Orthodox and the Hasidic uh, at one end, um, and then uh, uh, Orthodox and, and, and then, you know, conservative, uh, reform, and then Reconstructionist. Reconstructionist is sort of the newest, and it was actually, they were begun right here in Philadelphia, and their seminary oh, yeah. is here in Philadelphia. Uh, so, and I could go into the history, but it, it probably is not the most germane thing. Um, but certainly in terms of commitment, in terms of a shared social value and ethos, 
Um, I have I find it enormously fulfilling and beautiful to worship with them, and we've had them to worship with us, and it's a great relationship. Uh, but you probably know about it because we we brew beer together. We right. have a brewing competition. Uh -huh. yeah, yeah, yeah. How how do you feel that the, that that particular part of of their faith and your faith dovetail? Is it is it a set of common values? Is it because that you tend to to be more towards the liberal left end of the religious spectrum, and and perhaps they are as well? Well, it makes it easier in some ways to be able to say, look, we can reunite around these social causes. Mm -hmm. But it actually is in some ways what makes the relationship valuable is the fact that we are different. We do have different practices, um, different beliefs, different traditions. And it's in learning about those and experiencing those that actually, it's incredible. I mean, I love, I love going to their worship or doing some of the traditional meals and things like that. I find it amazing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Nice. I have a. I wanted to read you a, a very brief quote and yeah, have yeah. your uh, reaction to that. Actually, before that, I was going to say, your job requires a lot of writing. So I'm curious, what what do you read? Because you write very well. So clearly, okay. there has to be, you know, a component of of being a writer in order mm -hmm. to to successfully express these these ideas well. So how what do you draw in as a as an individual to be able to write as you do? I mean, what do you read? I, I always try to be reading one nonfiction and one fiction at, at any given time, and sometimes I'll blow through it in no time, uh, and sometimes it, you know, I'm reading. Um, this is not the exact title, but it's the my nonfiction right now is the myth uh, of religious America. That's the I'm not getting the title, but it's an extensive historical deconstruction of the idea that we were founded as a religious nation. Mm -hmm. um, the author is clearly a great historian, but not the most scintillating writer from right. the moving along standpoint. Do you agree with the, the general premise of the, of the book? I I mean, are they, are they it, making their case? I, the I, th I think they, they make a pretty strong case. I mean, I think there's been a, always, there's a lot that went into, um, as early as the mid-18th century, you were already sort of, there was already an idealization of the Puritan colonies that really didn't reflect reality. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, the notion of America being the new Israel, which I think is a, a pretty destructive, not helpful concept. Mm -hmm. Yeah, a little thorny. And, um, what, and what is your fiction then? Uh, it's, I'm rereading, uh, it's, um, it's a pretty long historical fiction piece on the unification of Japan under uh, under the under uh, the, there were three unifiers of Japan Nobunaga Hideyoshi and Tokugawa Ieyasu and uh, Hide is this one focuses on uh, Hideyoshi mm -hmm. so it's a late 1500s Japan and the war that leads to what Japan. is the book called uh, it's called um, oh crap <laughs> uh, Come on, you remember the Japanese guys? Names. I know, I know, I know. Uh, I think it's called. Oh, if only we it had called an edit Hideyoshi? Right now. Is it called? Are you asking me? I don't, I don't know. Anyway, it's about yeah, I... Hideyoshi. Uh, um, I don't know why my brain's not working better, but that's all right. It's anyway. pretty late. Yeah, it's like 800 pages and it's microscopic print. Yeah, but it's really good. Yeah, you, you mentioned orcs. Do you read a lot of yeah, epic, yeah, epic fantasy a lot as well? Of epic fantasy. Did you grow up reading that? Oh God, I was. A, I had all the. Dungeons and Dragons. I still have Dungeons and Dragons. <laughs> that upset my mother more than the punk rock stuff because she was convinced that it was satanic because she watched all that Pat Robertson uh, 700 Club crap. Yeah. Um, but, uh, um, yeah, no, I love all that 
fantasy and yeah, definitely. Yeah, I mean, I grew up reading the same stuff and still do. So there's, yeah. there's oh yeah, absolutely. In my life, and absolutely. and remember the the great satanic panic of the '80s where everything was connected to to Satan and was yes, yes. He was getting his tendrils into into all the youth through their music. And oh yeah, games music and, and like Dungeons and Dragons was going because you're you're dabbling in witchcraft by saying. I roll. I throw a fireball. I'm gonna roll this die six. Oh, <laughs> yeah. When I was uh, considerably younger, I did a, a zine, and one of the people that I interviewed was a part of a group called the False Memory Foundation. And this uh -huh. was parents whose kids had, through uh, whatever psychiatrist they were seeing, had dredged up fantasies. In effect, false, Usually of false memories. Abuse, yeah, right? sexual abuse by. Uh, it's the mayor of the town and the judge and the local janitor and of course their parents and all this. Yeah. And then their lives would effectively be destroyed because they couldn't be questioned. Um, and right. you know Satan was at the root of this and this, this woman was part of this foundation who was trying to defend parents from these really ridiculous allegations that had, had gained some strength at that time and now are kind of looked at as being just bizarre and a weird anomaly, although it wasn't that long ago. No, no, it became this huge hysteria. I don't remember exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But no, so definitely, I, um, I uh, yeah, I'll pulling out some fantasy books is always enjoyable. But yeah. sometimes I try to read a book I haven't read before in the non in the fiction sense. Yeah, yeah. Uh, all right, I'll lay a quote on you. Um, yeah, let me pull this up. Uh, this was I was rereading uh, Jane Eyre, and oh, okay. uh, in in this part of the book, she's she's looking at a. a the dying Mrs. Reed, and this is what she, she thinks, uh, and she says, uh, One lies there, who will soon be beyond the war of earthly elements. Whither will that spirit, now struggling to quit its material tenement, flit when at length released? So she's wondering where, mm -hmm. where, where will the soul of this woman go uh, upon her death? And I'm curious, where, what do you think, what is your concept of where one's soul, uh, if we can accept that one has a soul, goes, what is it? I have no idea. I have no idea. I mean, if you want to really be strictly orthodoxly Christian, I don't mean that in the denominational sense. Mm -hmm. Christians don't actually believe that, like you're. Just in Scripture, doesn't believe that, like you, you know, you go towards the light or whatever. It's like we're dead until the second coming, and then we're bodily resurrected. Mm -hmm. uh, just to be clear, that's actually what the Scripture says. People, check it out for yourselves. Mm -hmm. um, but um, it's uh, I, I here's what I believe. I believe that there is more to our existence than I think that's in some way we go on when our heart stops beating uh, and we die. I don't know in what form. I believe that we are to use a phrase in the nearer we are nearer somehow nearer to God. Uh, if that's heaven, I, I don't know. I think we, you know, we humans do a pretty good job of creating constructs um, and trying to simplify concepts that maybe only mystics can understand. Mm -hmm. I mean, are you, are you faced with people who are, their lives are ending and perhaps want something more of a concrete answer from you, their priest, mm -hmm. you know, a more defined version of what you think mm -hmm. they're about to move into or what their loved one is going to move into. Absolutely, and I think that there are times to be, um, to be more pastoral, uh, and to not worry about the. Does this reflect exactly what I believe? I, you know, I I don't know. Maybe maybe there are, harps and halos. I don't I don't know. <laughs> yeah. 
Um, but if that's, you know, you could accuse me of maybe being disingenuous, but uh, if that's what they need to hear in that moment, if they need to hear that they're going to a place where they'll be with their mother who already died or that their mother is going to be with their dad who already died mm -hmm. uh, and that's comforting to them in that moment I, I don't know that it's wrong I know that God loves them while they're alive and I know that God will continue to love them after they're gone and so I don't I think that that's the most important thing mm -hmm. okay uh, well I guess that probably uh, mostly covers what we wanted to get to. So, oh, okay, uh, yeah. cool. Uh, so thank you very much uh, yeah. for, for talking to me. A lot of fun. Thank you. Thanks.